Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Recording with Exodus Volume 5. Had some technical difficulties with Zoom, but I guess I can't complain because it's a free service. Actually, I pay for it, so never mind. I can complain. But enough of that. Here we are back with Professor Moffat, Dean of Exodus Studies, Ken. And we've done volumes one through four on the past Sundays. We took a break last week because I was banned from YouTube for a week. But now I'm back and they can't stop us. So, Ken, take it away, sir, with volume five of Exodus. Well, the the first thing I want to point out is, is the beginning of the the actual exodus we've got the guys the israelites out of um, pharaoh's clutches now we're at the point where they're going to cross into the wilderness and this is part of what i think is the most interesting aspect of all this defeating the gods was one thing let me back up real quick last week i talked about um this book here it's called moses and the gods of egypt it's a great book if you're interested in this uh, topic. There's another one that I use. It's called Ancient Egypt in the Old Testament. It's by John Curid, C-U-R-R-I-D. And both of these are excellent, excellent sources um, if you happen to be interested in this topic. So um, I don't get anything for it. They're just, they're just really, really good books. Sure. So now we're here. At, at the beginning of what has become the really most contentious aspect, did the parting of the Red Seas occur? The Reed Sea, as I will refer to it from this point on, R-E-E-D. And the itinerary, once they got through the Reed Sea into the desert, the wilderness of Sur, where did they go? What is the route that they took? Now, for centuries, conventional wisdom had them going. And by the way, do you have that map that I sent you? Do we need that for this episode? Um, if you, if I can, can you see this? I can, okay? I can see that. Yeah, sorry. I'm, I, I was going to have it pulled up. Yes. Okay. I can see that fine. For, for centuries, what they, the scholars and et cetera, et cetera, everybody that knew everything, they crossed the Red Sea and then they went down here to Mount Sinai which is about 200 miles south. And we're going to get into what Mount Sinai consists of and so on and so forth. And then when they're done with that, uh, let me just switch to map two. We cross the Reed Sea, then we go about 200 miles south, and they've got Mount Sinai down here, which makes absolutely no sense, no sense whatsoever. Then when they're through down here, they come all the way back up. Some people say that they crossed on dry land over here, went down here, came back up here, and crossed the Gulf of Aqaba. That makes even less sense, and it's not biblically accurate. It does not follow the itinerary. So my conjecture, as well as really, really learned Egyptologists and archaeologists, and we're actually going to touch on some of this stuff from some geologists, 
have uh, done work that prove what we're talking about here is this body of water up in this region here, right outside of Goshen, where they lived, that is the original Reed Sea. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But I, what, what I wanted to do today is start with an uh, Exodus chapter 13, beginning with verse 17. And it reads, Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near, for God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, what we've got here again, I love maps. This is this road up here that you see way up here north. The Egyptians called that the way of Horus. Horus being the falcon-headed, half-human, half-falcon uh, uh, god. The ancient Romans called that the Via Maris, or by way of the sea, Maris being sea, the, the Mediterranean. God did not want them to go that route. As he says here, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Well, the reason that they would have seen war and recent expeditions uh, excavations archaeological excavations have uncovered a series of forts which would lead them into canaan there are a series of about 23 forts and these things are massive and there's a great youtube video and, and i'm going to get it and send the link to you i don't know if you can add the link to this mm -hmm. but it's by a dr james hoffmeyer and i'll address him a little bit later he's an egyptologist was he's an american his parents were uh, missionaries he was born in egypt speaks the uh, egyptian hieroglyphics he's a phd and all this it's just a phenomenal phenomenal video and he points all of this out in the archaeological digs that's why god said i don't want them going this way because if they as soon as they leave they're going to see these forts and it's like <clears throat> we can't make it mm -hmm. let's go back to egypt and just you know just go back to being slaves so what he did was he turned them around and we're going to get into that in a little bit it's kind of like it's kind of like leaving in a, an abusive relationship seeing how hard the dating scene is so you go back to the abusive relationship you know that that's funny I, I tell my wife all the time when we watch some of these shows and, and when i was a police officer I wish I had a dollar for every time we'd go to, this is back in the 70s, before you somebody went to jail. You go to the house and, the, and it was typically the wife and she'd been punched around and you'd ask her, do you want to take your husband, your boyfriend? I went, no, I just want him to go spend the night at his brother's for, okay. Today, somebody goes to jail. Yeah. And then you'd come out the next day, he's right back at it. Yeah. And because they can't make that break, but, but yeah, you're correct. It's better to go back here and live in Egypt than to die out here in this wilderness because they didn't have the faith. They had just seen all these plagues that God did. God just freed them, but we still don't have enough faith to think he can get us out of this mess. So um, what I want to do is drop down into verse um, 20, and it says, They set out from uh, Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And once again, I'm going to bring out my map. So we see that they started up here. And then they came down here to Sukkoth, which means booths. 
and then they went over to Etham, and this little area in here is called, uh, it's right on the edge of the wilderness, and you see these series of lakes. These are going to play an important role in this whole thing. And between these lakes, the Egyptians had actually dug canals to keep the invaders out and the slaves in. And these are really wide canals. So you got these series canals. So these lakes then essentially became interconnected with each other. If you think of the Great Lakes, the, all the lakes are essentially start up here. They just kind of finger out into these other regions. So now we've got the the uh, Israelites are down here at Etham. From there, they, they got Egypt behind them. You got the wilderness in front of them. So where are we going to go? Pharaoh wilderness pharaoh wilderness they don't know what to do and this is where that part about faith comes in so across from uh egypt you've got the wilderness of sir now i want to pause here for just a quick moment and um explain the difference in the ancient terminology of sea and lake we have terminology for everything they didn't. And when you look at, um, for instance, um, these massive lakes, like the Sea of Galilee is actually a lake, but the ancients didn't refer to it a lake only in other uh, different times. For instance, uh, the Sea of Galilee is, is referred to as either a lake or sea. In Matthew, several passages referred to it as a sea. Luke refers to it as a sea. He also refers to it as a lake. Hold on one second. Yeah, here you go. What do you want? I am. It's holding up. Yeah. My IT person is... Uh, well, I can use these books. Here, come and get this. Sure. That's fine. She wants to take the computer so she can do what she's going to do with it, not just use it. You are quite all right. Are, there, so are the canals, when you said a series of canals, so not one long, not like a Suez or a Panama Canal, but rather... Uh, they, they, they lakes. Okay. Bala, and there, there's a series of, I think, three lakes called Bala Lake, Bitter Lake, and then I think there's one they call a little bitter lake is what it's called, which is going to be interesting because the, the Israelites eventually have to get water out of this. And it was kind of a bitter and we're not going to get into that. But Moses threw a stick in it and purified the water and, and so on. But um, um, so at any rate, we, we see the, the term lake and sea is used interchangeably. In John, uh, the writer calls the Sea of uh, Galilee Lake Tiberius, named after the, the uh, Roman emperor at the time. He also calls it the Sea of Galilee. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it's, it's referred to as the Sea, Lake Chenereth, and Lake of Garrison. And so we see these terms being used interchangeably. And the point of this is, when they talk about the Sea of Reeds, it's not necessarily a sea. It's just this giant lake. But to the ancients, any body of water was a sea. So here's that's why we call okay. it the sea of, okay. sea of Reeds. And as we're going to see in this lake system, the Lake Bala, B-A-L-L-A system, was in the northeast corner 
up here of Goshen. This is where the, uh, if you can see, this is where the Israelites lived. And this lake system over here is where they eventually will cross. And that's the, the Lake Bala system. Um, in Hebrew, that's Yam Suf, uh, Y-A-M-S-U-F, which literally means the sea of reeds. Reeds do not grow in salt water. They grow in fresh water. The Red Sea, as we know it today, and the Gulf of Aqaba are salt water. Reeds don't grow in salt water. So what that does for us is it tells us, gives us a good, good starting point from where they started their journey, which is the Exodus itinerary. And the itinerary is laid out in Exodus chapters 12 through 19, uh, Numbers 11 through 12, and then uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Because when Moses is writing this, he is telling future Israelites, future Jews, Hebrews, and so on, this is where we went. This is where we camped. And that's the exact word that the scriptures use. And the Israelites camped, and the Israelites camped, and the Israelites camped. But one of the fascinating things about this is all of the place names, all of the locations mentioned in the Exodus itinerary are mentioned are in the northern Sinai, up in this region, up in here. None of it is down here. Okay. It is all up in the northern region. And that's where the contention comes in. Some scholars, like I said, have the uh, Israelites leaving Egypt and then going about 200 miles south, where we have been taught since you know grade school and bible class and kids and so on that mount sinai is about 200 miles south it's not when you look at scripture you follow the itinerary it's like following a map and if you follow the map to where exactly the where the road leads you you'll get to your destination when you go on vacation you don't say well i think this is the road to where i'm going it's laid out for them. Yeah. God knew exactly where he wanted them to go, step by step by step. And he, in fact, took them the shortest and the safest route to get. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply to Canaan, the land of promise. Okay. 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 Um, can, can, you hold, but, can you hold up the colored map again? If, if, if it doesn't take too much, if we're not deviating too much from the, the, the planned lecture, can you, can you just explain it in, in its entirety? Can you just, I mean, for me at the very least, just so I know, no, that's fine. Yeah, we start up. We start up here, and um, it says Ramses. But the reason it says Ramses is that was changed for later, um, sort of like an, uh, an updated version of a name. 
Um, so the, the Hebrews or the Jews that read this centuries after the fact would have a, a focal point that they could reference this to because the name was later changed to Ramses. This, this town up in here where they started from had, I think, four different names, anywhere from Ruote, um, Avaris, um, Punifer, and if you remember the Indiana Jones movie, he talks, I think it's the very first one, he talks about Avaris. Well, that was the original capital of the Hyksos, and if you remember back in Exodus chapter 1 when we did this, we talked about the Hyksos, mm -hmm. the foreign invaders. That was their capital over time, and you'll notice that it follows a, a tributary of the Nile. They weren't going to build their capital city in, away from the water. So this is where uh, they started up in here. Uh, they went south to Succoth, which means booths, then over here to Etham. And at this point, God tells them that he wants them to turn. Now, the Hebrew word for this, the, the most clear meaning that scholars can come up with, means that they were to turn north. Once they go up here to the north, they God tells them he wants them to camp by Migdal, which it means fort in Hebrew, the sea, Lake Bala, and Baal Ziphon. Baal Ziphon, Baal is a Canaanite god. Baal Ziphon means God of the North. There were there were Semitic peoples living in here, so they would have brought their religion with them. Uh, the Hyksos were Semitic people. And so all of these place names up in here have been identified. Now, can they pinpoint exactly like uh, the intersection of First and Broadway? No, but they know pretty close okay. where these areas are because they have found them in hieroglyphics and other Egyptian writing referring to the various forts and whatnot that were built along here uh, to protect the, uh, protect the eastern flank of uh, Egypt. Mm -hmm. So here we are up here. Okay. And and what's the name? Uh, what are the name? So you said uh, Sukka. What are the other? What are the names above that? It says like Tel El Manashoba. I can't. I can't read. Um, is that a secondary name? Yes. No. Tel is a. It's either a Hebrew or it's an Aramaic Arabic name, meaning an archaeological site. That's okay. what Tel means. Okay. And and that's that's all these are. These are the current names of the archaeological sites. Okay. Uh, Tel means. And if you look throughout uh, Israel, you will see uh, Tel this, Tel that, yeah. whatever. That's all that means. It's a, it's a um, an archaeological dig, a mound, if you will. Okay, I actually saw that word for the I think the first time in my life, like two days ago, because I was looking up. I was like, oldest archaeological sites, and there was something, but it said tell, and I was like, what does yeah. that mean? Okay, I didn't yeah. know that. Okay, tell. Yeah. So is that what that one is? L above yeah. the yeah. in parentheses it says of of Avaris. Avaris. Yes. So what's above that? L L D A B. Uh, okay, you have Tanis, Arvars, okay, El uh, Devada, okay. which is present day uh, where they think that the city of Ramses was. Okay. 
up into here. And this this is where they think that uh, scholars believe that they started from the city of Ramses, which used to be called uh, either Rowalte, Avaros, Punifer. So there's three or four different names depending on who's in charge um, and so on and so forth. It's just the way the ancient world was. So they start up here. They move down to Sukkoth, which means booths. As a matter of fact, the Hebrews later, as they were out in the desert and into the Jews, they would have um, the time of Jesus. They would celebrate the festival of booths as a reminder of their wandering in the desert. Okay. So that's it's, it's called the festival of Sukkoth or booths. Okay. So we're down here over here at the Etham, and when you look across, you're looking at the wilderness of Sur, of Sur, and it's at this point that God tells them to turn, which means that the, the best meaning they could understand is that they're gonna go north. Okay. And up here is Migdal, means fort. Migdal, the sea, Lake Bala, this whole system of lakes. And, um, and it was at this point, he also said, I want you to camp by Baal Ziphon. Baal Ziphon was an area that was called um, God of the North. Baal, the Canaanite God, Ziphon meaning of the North. So, so now we have them up here. And it's at this point where Pharaoh catches up to them. And they are looking, here's Pharaoh, here's the wilderness, here's this giant lake. Moses, we're doomed. Look what you've done to us. Yeah. And there's a very famous passage in uh, Exodus where Moses says, be still and just watch God work. Yeah. And it's at this point that Moses opens up the Reed Sea. Okay. And that's up into here. And after they get through the Reed Sea, they're going to go into the wilderness of Sur, S-H-U-R. Now, what's interesting about this is that people say, well, it's a lake. It could not possibly drown um, the Egyptian soldiers in the chariots. Yeah, the chariots. Well, a couple of things come to mind. Swimming was not a, a sport that the it, Egyptians... Yeah, it was like reading and writing. It wasn't... No, not everybody got it. Yeah, and very few did. Um, the other thing about this is that... Uh, and I'll touch, on, I'll, I'll touch on it now, but we'll touch on it later. Um, Professor Hoffmeyer and this team of Egyptologists, archaeologists, and geologists, um, they were doing samples, core samples, when they um, were in there excavating these forts. And they went back and they, they did core samples into these uh, uh, dried up lakes. Remember I told you about during the 1960s when the uh, Seven Day War and so on between Egypt and Israel and so on? that the uh, uh, Israelites, Israelites, the Jews, had access to NASA satellites and CIA uh -huh. spies, satellites, uh -huh. stuff like that. And they found these old lake beds, and they said, what are these? And the Egyptologist uh, and archaeologist said, let me have a look at those. And they went back and said, yeah, those are lake beds. They could identify these lake beds. Well, they did core samples into this, and some of these lakes were as much as 20 to, uh, 18 to 20 feet deep. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but 18 to 20 feet is pretty deep. And I've mentioned this before. You know what the average depth of the Mississippi River is? It's 15 feet. Okay. We have we have Mississippi just 20 minutes down from here. We have drowning. They found a guy drowned in there the other day. Yeah. They drowned in there all the time. 
and he didn't have a chariot or battle armor yeah. or anything like that. Yeah, if, people if, down in their bathtub. Yeah, if, if you, if, yeah, if you don't know how to swim, I mean, again, it kind of seems like it seems laughable because it's like it's we just kind of all grew up knowing how to swim. But I mean, if you had never swim, just think of a normal swimming pool. What ten feet in the deep end? If you if you fell in and just what you know you're blown all the air out of you and got and sat at the bottom, I mean that's absolutely enough to kill you. If you didn't know what swimming was and it's the first time you've ever been in a big body of water, you're panicking. You're covered in bronze or copper or whatever age it was. Yeah, you're done. Well, then you have to also be concerned with the massive force where physics takes over when those waves start to come back and they're churning. Yeah. Well, if you were to, as the legend goes, split it open and it comes back in, yeah, it's a lot of weight. Have you ever seen like a, uh, there's like a video of this like a uh, like construction machine. It's the one with the big scoop in the front. Yes. It picks up just a big, it's just all water and they put it over a, like a car, like a Camry or something. And then it, it drops it all. You don't really think anything of it, but when the water clears, the roof is caved in, all the mm-hmm. all the windows are blown out, the actual, like, the main structure of the car is bent. You don't realize it, but that, that's just the weight of water. But it's just water, so it seems so innocent. But I, I had heard, I can't verify this, but I had heard that pound for pound, water is the heaviest substance. I don't think, uh, not liquid, uh, not the heaviest liquid, I think mercury. I'm not a physicist. Well, it's it's not, it's not something to scoff at, scoff at. There's a reason why, there's a reason why tsunamis, you know, it, it, you can often raise an eyebrow because you're like, it just looks like flooding, but then it kills 200,000 people. It's insidious and and it's unsuspect. The point is, is if you hadn't swum before and you're in a chariot, it's absolutely going to kill you. That's the point. Yeah, you, know, you can also go to uh, when uh, Peter had his faith and he thought he could walk on water and he began to sink. Peter didn't know how to swim. Yeah. I mean, it's just not something the ancients engaged in. I mean, it's and so it's 2021. We we still have lifeguards. You know, right. it's, 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 you know, not a, you, you go on a boat, you can be an adult, you can own the boat, you can have the license. If you don't have enough life jackets on the pontoon boat. You're still going to get a ticket. It's, it's a, that's exactly correct. Point is, is yes, it's enough to drown people. Sorry for that whole, that whole side. No, no, no. I just wanted to understand the, the map. I wanted to understand so I could visualize yeah. it in my mind. Sorry. Back to you. So here we are. They okay. have crossed the Reed Sea and they are in the wilderness of Sur which is out in here. Now, there's several highways that crisscross this because there were ancient mines, copper mines, uh, turquoise mines, and so on and so forth that um, were operated. The Egyptians had some and so on. But here is the um, the route that they took that most uh, scholars believe that they took. And another thing that's interesting about this, if you remember the story, when Moses flees to Midian, um, he doesn't flee down here. He doesn't flee up here. He flees straight across over this region over in here is Midian. The interesting thing about it is that as Moses is out tending his father-in-law Jethro's sheep and he encounters God and Moses says, I'm not eloquent. I've got you know a thousand excuses why I shouldn't have to go back. But God says, don't worry about it. Your brother Aaron is on his way and his way and his way. Well, if Aaron, obviously, I'm positive God directed him, but still Aaron would have taken the same road and he knew, I mean the two intersect is what it amounted to 
This was the common road that was taken over here through Jordan. There was a road called the King's Highway. And what they would come down here, the caravans, they would cut across and they would go into Egypt. This was one of the roads in, uh, into Egypt. So it was a very commonly used road. So for them, people say, well, they went down here. No, they didn't. And what we're going to do now is show, when you look at some of these places down here, this map doesn't show them, but they've got certain places that the, that they say that the Hebrews uh, went to down here. Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture does not say that at all. But I want you to, if you can, in your mind's eye, while I'm going through this, I need two hands for that. Mm -hmm. Just think of the northern Sinai, because this is where we're going to be focusing. Okay. Now, the first thing that I want to bring to everybody's attention is, how do I know it's the northern Sinai? Because that's where these place names are that the Bible talks about. Now, once again, can they pinpoint them? to the you know give me a grid square of one two three four five six that's where it is no but they know pretty close where they are because some of the names still have the same uh, place names for instance there's a place called Raphidim, um r-e-p-h-i-d-i-m this is where the israelites were complaining that we have no water and the famous story of where Moses strikes the rock, God tells him strike the rock and, and water comes out. It's found in uh, Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. Scripture says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Raphidim. Now, verse 6 says, Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb. Well, we know for a fact that Horeb is in, it's one of the four or five names that is used for Mount Sinai in this region here. Um, and we'll get into the various names later, but right now they're all located right up in here. The, the wilderness of Paran, uh, Sinai, Paran, Horeb, I'll, I'll get the other ones, but they're all located right up in here. And these are all synonymous for each other because scripture uses them interchangeably. Um, God went to Horab. God was on Sinai. It's the same mountain, just a different name. In Numbers chapter 20, Raphidim is referred to as Kadesh. Well, Kadesh Barnea is up in here. We know that because some of these places are, are still existing today. Again, it's not in the south. These are all in the north. Um, Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 says, Then Amalek, who was king of the Amalekites, um, and went out and fought against Israel at Raphidim. Where's Raphidim? It's Kadesh. Now, this is where you kind of you kind of can have some fun with these people who say all this stuff occurred down here. We know that Raphidim, or Kadesh, is up in here. Let's just say for the sake of discussion, this is the Amalekites' kingdom. King Amalek, Amalek is watching over his kingdom and he's dutiful, etc., etc. Well, let's just say that for whatever reason, the Israelites left Egypt and they come all the way down here, 200 miles south. How would King Amalek know that they were down there? We didn't have modern communication. He had no, he would have had no, no. Why would he have cared? Mm -hmm. This ragtag bunch of Hebrews is wandering down down here in the desert, 200 miles south. 
But scripture tells us that Amalek came out and fought against Egypt. I'm sorry, fought against uh, the Israelites at Raphidim or Kadesh, which is up in here. And this, this again, is you, you kind of put your logic together. Numbers chapter 20, verse 14 says, From Kadesh, Moses then sent his messengers to the king of Edom. Well, where's Edom? We know that Edom is located at the southern part of what is now Jordan and the southern part of what is now Israel. It's an old kingdom, no longer exists, but that's where it was. So if you're way down here, why would you send a messenger 200 miles north to seek permission from the king of Edom to pass through to get over here to what is now modern day Jordan? Yeah, it doesn't add up. Uh, not at all. Yeah, it's not. It's one plus one is not seven. No, <laughs> but we go back to, and we'll touch on this a little bit. But why is it that that we have got the um, Israelites down here at the southern tip of of uh, the Sinai Peninsula? Well, what about Mount Sinai itself? Now, Moses is a herder. He has a flock of sheep. He is tending his father-in-law's sheep, Jethro. His father-in-law lived over here in Midian. Now, would you take your sheep 200 miles south to graze them? And especially when I tell you what Mount Sinai, that whole region is consists of, you'd have to be completely out of your mind because you, first, they're not going to survive. Yeah, the trip. I was about to say, it's, it's 200 miles. I mean, unless yeah. you've got a private helicopter. If you got a CH, load them, load, this guy's yeah, CH forty seven. Unless you got yeah, load, up, load them on the Chinook and we'll yeah. get them down there. So <laughs> you're gonna go down here. Then God speaks to you. Then you got to drive those sheep back up. It, it defies logic. This is what Mount Sinai, that region that is called Mount Sinai, consists of. Mount Sinai's rocks were formed during the late stage of the evolution of the Arabian Nubian Shield. Mount Sinai displays a ring complex that consists of alkalines, granites, intruded in diverse rock, diverse rock types, including volcanoes. The granite range is a composite of Sino granite and alkali feldspar granite. The volcanic rocks are alkaline to pre-alkaline, and they are represented by subaerial flows and eruptions of subvolcanic rocks. So this is where I'm going to go graze my sheep? No, not at all. Yeah. Bedouins still, to this day, graze their flocks in this region up in here. So we know for a fact, you put all of this evidence together, this is where Moses was grazing his flocks, his father-in-law's flocks up in here. This is where, and we're going to look at it later, that we know the different names for um, Sinai, Paran, Sinai, Horeb, and so on, are all in this region in here, the wilderness of Sin, the wilderness of Sur, and, and all of that is right up in here, Kanesh Barnea, as scripture points out. It tells you exactly where they went, because where are they going? They're going up here. They're going to cross the Jordan into Canaan. So why would you be down here to cross the Jordan? The Jordan River runs through Jordan, uh, Israel proper. But that's the river they're going to cross. Mm -hmm. So how do we get this name uh, way down south? 
The monastery during Roman times and Byzantine rule, the story of St. Catherine's monastery, monastery is said to have begun with an annexation by the Nabataean kingdom by the Romans during the second century AD. Under Roman rule, the region declined and the Sinai region, which became wilderness, attracted Christian monks who sought to live an ascetic life far away from human society. During the first half of the fourth century AD, let me get that out of the way. The first century AD, the Empress Helena, mother of Constantine, emperor of the Roman Empire, ordered the chapel of the burning bush to be built on the site where Moses received the Ten Commandments. Where Helena thinks that the Mo Moses received the Ten Commandments. There is no archaeological evidence. There is no biblical evidence that it was 200 miles south of where we just proved it was. The chapel, which was dedicated to the Virgin Mary, is now considered to be the holiest part of the monastery. Now, this is the good part. Although initially dedicated to the Virgin Mary, the monastery was later associated with St. Catherine of Alexandria, who was martyred in 307 AD. According to tradition, St. Catherine was ordered by the Roman Emperor uh, Maxitinus to be severely beaten and, and tried uh, to a rolling spiked wheel for her refusal to renounce Christianity. When she survived the ordeal, the emperor ordered her to be beheaded. I'll kill you twice. Her body was said to have been miraculously transported by angels to Mount Sinai. This also means the locations that we've all been led to believe is, is the location of Mount Sinai is completely wrong. Someone's agenda. Why? Sell books up here on TV, mm -hmm. documentaries, etc., etc., etc. Well, there's why is that? Well, it, there's also, a, <clears throat> I would imagine, there's a hesitance hesitance to disrupt disrupt the status quo. I mean, may, maybe it's you know, maybe it's some nefarious plan, or it might it might just be, hey, the whole thing we have is you know, there was the wheel, there was the pyramids, then there was Jesus, the church came over to America, Revolution, World War Two, present day Statue of Liberty, and it's like that existing structures you don't want to tip that because a lot of like you said a lot of people are making a lot of money even just academia yeah, yeah. reprinting books professors you don't want to have to disrupt disrupt at all and not only that if you're a phd or a geologist or whatever historian at smithsonian i mean it's kind of like playing musical chairs right it's like passing the u.s debt down onto our kids and our kids kids no one wants to have to be the phd to say you know what uh i know i've spent my whole life studying this but it turns out I was entirely wrong. Nobody, that's just human ego. No one wants to be the one that has to say, oh, we have it all wrong. And, and especially if you're a tenured professor yeah. at a university yeah. and you've been teaching this for years and years. And one of the requirements, um, where'd you go to college? University of Georgia. Bulldogs? Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah. Um, Shout out UGA. Uh, <laughs> well, at any rate, the San Jose State State University, um, the professors there had to publish. Yeah, you had to publish a book, and yeah. I'm sure the University yeah. of Georgia was absolutely, absolutely. And um, I, I remember my history of ancient Rome professor Jonathan Roth uh, published three or four books on Roman warfare. He's a you know PhD in this stuff, and, and that's what they have to do. So what do you do exactly? What you said? Well, they have published these books and they have done the documentaries and they've been the guests on TV shows and stuff and they've all espoused this. Then it turns out, uh-oh, I was wrong about all this. 
so the president at the university or the dean of your uh, your particular study comes and says, you know what, uh, Professor Ken, you've been wrong about all this stuff. Time for you to hit the road. Yeah, maybe you should go back to college and, no, uh, yeah, yeah. and, and get it right. Yeah, and then when you've got every professor who they're all leaning on that, but it, it could also be as simple as like, you've been teaching this for 40 years, you've got three more years left and then you're retiring. Why are you going to take that burden? Yeah, just yeah. kick it down the road. It's like North Korea and their nuclear program. Next administration. Next administration. Just keep and, and that's and, and that's exactly. There's another thing too is, and it kind of plays into what you said that that um, nobody ever challenged it. It was just fed to us, and because we're sheep, we accepted it as a fact. And it wasn't until we have modern technology and Egyptologists and archaeologists and others who are interested in the topic of the Exodus really began to study it more closely that they discovered that what we were told might not be the case. And fortunately, with all of this new technology and the, and the technology that they use in 2021, it's just so far superior than even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that they can detect things now. They've got jet, ground jet uh, penetrating radar. From space, uh, yeah. They do from space, and they also have you know, these giant things that they can just kind of walk behind, mm-hmm. and it'll detect uh, caverns under the ground. Mm-hmm. It'll detect an- detect anomalies, and they do all of these uh, excavations at this point, and they run earth whole cities. And especially, you know, one of the interesting things I know, I know. I'm, no, I'm no, talk, keep going. Talk, I like it. No, keep going is that Egypt proper um, made, and they probably still do, when they come in, they do these archaeological digs, they are very reluctant to allow anything that proves the um, history that Israel is, in fact, a legitimate nation. (laughs) They were never here, we never heard of them, um, and so on and so forth. There's a, a professor out of Austria, his name is Manfred Betok, and um, he's very, very good. And he's, he's not a Christian or anything, but he's just very, very good at what he does. And he has spent 30-something years digging in Goshen, which is, once again, this region up in here. And um, he has uncovered um, massive cities that date back to the Hyksos period. Once again, just a quick refresher, Ixos were the Semitic peoples that came down from what is now northern Syria through Canaan into and settled the lower Egypt, which is the, the region where the Nile River floods into flows into um, the Mediterranean Sea. This is called northern, I'm sorry, lower Egypt even though it's higher or the northern part of the country because the Nile River flows. Um, it's the only river in the world that flows south to north because mm-hmm. of the way the flows out of the mountains. But he has found um, evidence of the Hyksos, Semitic peoples, in the fact of um, the, their burial sites, um, their pottery uh, language, some of the names of the individuals that are that are found in these tombs and whatnot are purely Semitic. They're not Egyptian. And it wasn't until after the Egyptians, you know, they had their intermediate period and they got into the, okay, we need to kick these Hyksos out. So they kicked them out and uh, Pharaoh Amos 
is the one that put the uh, Hebrews uh, under slavery. But uh, um, Manfred Betok went in and he's found uh, in this area of Avaris, Tanis, and so on, um, the uh, very, very interesting digs. He, I was watching a video today on this and he was asked the question, uh, the city of, I think it was Avaris, how much of it do you believe in all of the seasons they do uh, six to eight week seasons then the Egyptians would make them cover it up again so they could grow stuff on he come after the next year <coughs> we don't want you to find anything that proves that uh, there were actually were um, um, Semitic peoples here he said that out of the and he estimates it's a, a huge city for the ancient time he's found uncovered about three percent. Jeez. So there is massive, massive amounts back there. Yeah, it's like um, have can I think a book that you would adore is um, is Fingerprints of the Gods by um, what is his name Graham Hancock. He's this guy that it's kind of what we're talking. It's not my field of expertise, so I can't speak on it. But it's it's all of this evidence that yeah, basically our image of of the most I guess ancient forms of humanity is completely incorrect there's like um he brings over like a like a water geologist specialist from harvard and they chose there's like there's like um rain it's water erosion on the sphinx that could only occur over thousands of years and then that thousands of years would have to be preceded by thousands of years of rainfall in order to build up that much. But then there hasn't been rainfall since the last great period of rainfall wasn't for thousands of years before the Sphinx was created. So the, he paints this whole picture that, you know, the Sphinx might be something like 36,000 years old, like the pyramids might be like 15,000 years old. And it's this whole, again, it's not my field of expertise. And I don't know what, but to me, the most interesting thing is, is all of the criticism and rejection that his theories um, and evidence meet it seems to be from a lot of people that they don't want the whole thing changed it's like we've got this whole we've got our academia we've got our it happened here and then it happened here and then they invented fire in the printing press and la di da di da and then you know Benjamin Franklin flew a kite into a lightning storm it's this whole it's this whole mythos we have about humanity and he's He's showing, and I don't know if it's correct, but he's showing. He's like, I think we might be wildly off the mark. I I, I think so, um, and by, by by no stretch of imagination, <clears throat> as smart as any of those guys that you're talking about. But I don't think they're that old um, because they can trace the founding of Egypt back to the very first pharaoh uh-huh. who was just organized this ragtag group of individuals um it, it, i don't think it's anywhere near that i think that they place it at maybe five to six thousand years yeah which is still considerably old yeah um but it, it's interesting about the sphinx and so on and, and what they represent and the weathering that they're showing uh had to have occurred for thousands of years yeah it's yeah it's i'm again i can't say it enough i'm not an expert in this and i have no idea maybe if i actually understood this stuff maybe i'd look at this guy and be like that's ridiculous but there does seem it seems that people that do understand this are kind of looking at it scratching their head and they're like yeah there's only one way that could happen right it's like it's like if you're seeing a silver disc flying around the sky part of your brain's going 
I know that's not human made, but like my brain can't come to terms with maybe that's alien. So it's like the brain, it's like dividing by zero. You kind of short circuit and then you go, "Eh, I'm just hallucinating. Right. It's, but the point is, is I said all that to say, yeah, they're like, you're saying they don't, you know, any archeological, archeological digs that, you know, you can see the modern geopolitical biases and implications of we don't want to show that the Jews are, you know, it'd be like if China stopped digging somewhere because it, it shows that Taiwan is a people, you know, yeah, it's these weird, yeah. you know, yeah. You know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned that um, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, they, they scoffed at um was there really a Jesus? Is there really a Jesus, I should say? Um, if there was, did he really have a trial? And then all of a sudden up at Caesarea, um, they find this small um, uh, tell, telly, if you, uh, stila, if you will, um, with the name Pontius Pilate on it. And then, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Fall back, regroup. We, we need to reevaluate our thought process. Okay, well, maybe there was a Jesus, and maybe there was, but he didn't have to be, he didn't go through all this kind of fun stuff. Yeah. Um, so you're right. It, it, when you start to f- uncover all of this new information, it makes a lot of people nervous because makes we have to. Yeah. Um, I was watching one this morning. One of the key in the key things about all this is, you know, Moses was adopted he was drawn out of the uh, the nile river moses means to be drawn out by the pharaoh's daughter uh Hatshepsut. that's me and and lots of other people much more learned than i am uh, uh, and i came to that just through my own individual research um so he's drawn out but when you get that that's called the the late exodus theory 1450 bc the early uh, exodus theory believes that ramses was the the pharaoh but the interesting thing about it is there's no mer- uh, mention of ramses having a daughter hmm. who has that kind of clout um Tutmos the first certainly did and and they speak of her at Hatshepsut. they there's monuments obelisk tombs and whatnot to, to her she did become a pharaoh. She did have the um, the muscle, if you will, to do exactly what scripture said she did. Took that baby, raised him as her own, and as we talked about in two or three episodes ago, he came in contact with his um, cousin, Tutmosis III. Tutmosis III gets shipped off because he had chips that didn't want him interfering with her being pharaoh. And raising her adopted son, Moses kills the Egyptian, he flees to Midian, Hatshepsut dies, Thutmose III becomes Pharaoh, he dies, Amenhotep II is now Pharaoh, Moses comes back and he's now confronting his second cousin. And that's how we get to all this. When you get to the part about Ramses, none of that falls into place. Mm. But there are people that are invested that Ramses had to be the fair. Why? Well, because Cecil B. DeMille said he was. Yeah, it's it's the yeah it's it's the it's the thing that perhaps upsets me the most about about science is that you know as a as a student of science as a biology major, I mean, you you observe the data, 
and you formulate your hypothesis, you see if it's uh, recreatable, and then you have your, there's no such thing as a fact, you just kind of have a running hypothesis, right? Gravity is a running hypothesis. The Earth being a sphere is a running hypothesis. It's There's no such thing as, as a fact in science. The problem becomes when all of a sudden you're running hypothesis, you start to take as fact, and then all incoming data, you now have to fit into your existing model that's not how it's supposed to be. You always observe the data. And if your model gets shattered, well, I mean, when you have an existing model, well, what does that lead to? That leads to burning, you know, astronomers at the stake, because how dare they say we go around the sun? You know, when you have an existing model, how dare you try to sail across the ocean? You're going to fall off the edge, right? When you, when you start, when you start protecting and shielding your precious little model, that stops all scientific growth, right? If I am right. convinced that I, Tommy Kerrigan, am always correct, how am I ever going to learn anything? Like, well, if Ken comes on and teaches me about Exodus, I'll take it as truth so long as I agree with it. It's like, well, no, I have to, I have to talk to people that it breaks my model, right? It's again, think of like the 1950s, some doctors in white coats. I only smoke Lucky Strikes, you know, good for the soul. And it shows a, it shows a, a, mo- a pregnant mom drinking a martini. has no effect on my baby it's no you have yeah so but the point is is, yeah we when we say it had to have been ramsey's it had to have been here it had to have been there and it's no observe it and what that imply or what that shows is what happened so we get that to um the discovery of dr hoffmeyer of these forts on the eastern flank of uh, egypt and um, one of the interesting things is that makes that such a pivotal point in all this as we go back to the very beginning, God says, I'm not sending them that way because when they see these forts, they're going to do an about face and they're going to get back to Egypt as fast as possible. So why is this important? Well, for two reasons. It tells us that after the invasion of the Hyksos, um, as we discussed a few weeks ago, the Egyptians realized that they need to get serious about their protection of their eastern border. They began building this southern, uh, this series of forts, 23 forts. And as the, the rivers shifted, the, their defenses shifted with the river, as the Nile, the tributaries, and so on. Um, the second thing it tells us, it, it, it confirms what the Bible said, that God said, I am not going to send them that way because I know them. I know what they'll do. I will have them turn around. They will cross here into the wilderness. And at that at that juncture, I will lead them through the exact itinerary. My map, this is what they're going to follow. And as long as they do that, um, then they'll be fine. You know, and the interesting thing about this is, that it's it's only when we follow the map as it's laid out as scripture lays it out through exodus numbers and deuteronomy exactly where moses said they went that we can verify these places we can't pinpoint them like a pinpoint on a map but we know within a geographical region where they are if we deviate from that map we can't find out how exactly they got there and we have to start making stuff up And one of the what struck me um, at, at the outset of when I was doing all this was when I was looking at the map, and I and I remember reading 
in uh, Numbers about, uh, or Deuteronomy about, where the Israelites first encountered their first battle after they left Egypt was with the Amalekites. And I read that it was at Raphidim or Kadesh. And, and I had really, hadn't really got into this too deep. And I said, well, that doesn't make a bit of sense. Why would they battle somebody that's 100 miles away? Why would they be at what? Why would uh, Amalek, the king, be 100 miles south and, and the Israelites were up here? Well, that's because all of the place names had to be shifted to fit the itinerary of these guys that write books and go on TV and stuff. When you shift them back to where they're supposed to be, the itinerary as laid out in scripture is boom, 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 boom. And we hang a left turn up here and we're on our way to the promised land mm. because the Jordan River is where we're going to cross. Mm. And that's how it fits. And once again, it's no different than going on vacation and we decide not to follow the map or our GPS. Well, I don't care if it says make a left turn up here. I'm going to go down south, I'm gonna do whatever. And you wind up going in the wrong direction. And uh, your wife and kids get mad because you never wind up at Disneyland. Yeah, yeah. And you're, <laughs> and you're too prideful for, You're too prideful to ask for directions. Who moved Disneyland? Exactly. This is some BS, right? It's kind of like Dumb and Dumber when they, take, when they go west instead of east. I don't know if you <laughs> go out and they're in the middle of the Great Plains. He said, man, he's like, I thought the Rocky Mountains would be a lot more rocky. <laughs> yeah, they're the, the, the Rocky Dunes. Yeah. But um, so that's that's how we got to that point. And um, the sad part of it is, you know, when you get into the New Testament geography and, and archaeology and so on and so forth, it's the same thing. Mm. People have got a lot of money. There's, a, there's an indi individual named Israel Frankenstein, and he is a Jewish archaeologist, very prominent Jewish archaeologist. He denies that the uh, Exodus ever occurred. He thinks that Israel was created... Uh, by just a ragtag group of guys just eventually kind of over the decades wandering in and so on. But he doesn't take into account um, how this ragtag group of guys um, defeated all of, this, all of the tribes within the Hittites, Perizzites, the Jebusites, all of these tribes that God enumerates that, uh, and he tells uh, Joshua, when you enter into, these are the people that you're going to have to do battle with. Mm. So, so a ragtag group of guys just formulate this massive army. Oh, we can go take on Jericho. Jericho was the most formidable city in the region, and they took it. But that doesn't fit the narrative of some of these guys. Yeah. And, I, I, and I, I look and I think, well, you're denying your own culture. You're denying your own heritage by doing this. Are you? Obviously, he doesn't believe in the scriptures. Um, which makes him probably an atheist, but it didn't happen. So therefore, um, I'm not accountable for what it says in the Ten Commandments. If it didn't happen, I'm not accountable for any of God's laws. Yeah. If it didn't happen, I can pretty much do what I want. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it doesn't add up. Yeah. I'll create my own scenarios as we go along. I'll create. I'll reject your reality and replace it with my own. And that's what we call delusion. There you go. That's exactly correct. Ken, Professor Ken, let's wrap this one up. We're actually, we've gone over a little bit over an hour. As always, it's an absolute pleasure. I enjoy sitting here and learning. Like I say, most episodes, it's 
this is the well, this is the one episode of the week where I get to sit back and I I have a podcast given to me. It's 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 your podcast, but I always look forward to it. They're brilliant. You have a limitless well of knowledge, and it's I thoroughly enjoy it. It's for anyone. There's no. I, I say this every week. It's it's mine. I have on who I want to have on. I don't do any favors. No one comes on here because I yeah I think maybe they should come on. I only have people back on that I enjoy having on, and this is something that I don't normally talk about. Right? I, I'm normally like talking about the future or space travel or nuclear fusion, or I really like hitting up on the Cold War. And this is to me, it's a fun uh, once a week kind of a it's a change up. It's a curveball where you come in and we and we talk about Exodus and ancient Egypt and uh, Moses, and it's I thoroughly enjoy it. It gets different parts of my brain working. And it, it, it breaks me out of my rhythm. And I mean, I, I, I do thoroughly enjoy it. I know I'm talking in circles now, but thank you very much, Ken. I'll send you an email um, since I think we pretty well wrapped up the exodus. They're out of Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land um, about a topic. If you're interested, we can. Absolutely. Oh, I, full, I fully intend on having you again on this. Sunday. Oh, great. Yeah, no, no, no. It, 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 you don't have a say in the choice. You don't have a say in the matter, Ken. It's, we're doing another episode. You better pull out another series because the shows don't stop. Well, I, I, I taught I taught this class too. It's the and I learned so much. It's right. really the, the trial, right? Absolutely. I, I call it the Inquisition. Yes, yes, and it's the the actual like legal, I yes, guess, history of the the trial of and again, it's it's not even in a in a religious sense. It's the it's the actual legal trial of an individual, Absolutely. Jesus Christ of Nazareth under a rain, under an individual, Pontius Pilate. It is as factual as, you know, killing Saddam. It's well, the, 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 the real villain here is, yeah, the real villain here is Caiaphas, the high priest. But uh, Pilate plays a small role. You know, for all, as bad as he was, and he was bad, um, he actually wanted to let Jesus go, but the Jews had no part of it. Yeah, yeah. It's but again, regardless of who's the bad guy, again, it's it's a it's an examination of an of an event in in history, and I think that's, yeah. that's a funny thing yesterday, where it was someone tweeted, uh, uh, some gun grabber tweeted, "How many AR-15s did Jesus have? Can someone remind me?" And someone commented, "Not enough to prevent his government from killing him." I was like, <laughs> "Touche." Yeah, yeah, that's true too. Yeah, yeah, right. It's yeah, but um, yeah. Please do email me or text me. Obviously, we talk, and um, yeah. Let's get into that next series, and then and then we'll keep going from there. Absolutely, it's, it's a it's a brain drain. Your your brain is a sponge, and I'm you are an agent, and I'm the KGB, and I've captured you, and I'm I'm wringing your brain of all of your information. But that's well, as I as I get older, there's less and less to wring out. So well, hey, man, I don't, <laughs> mine doesn't have any in it. So, but it's like one of my friends said. He's like, Tommy, I appreciate your podcast because it's one thing and one thing only. It's data mining. You have on people, they dump their data. There you it, go. It is, you know, Dale Comstock comes on and he tells stories about being in Delta Force. Or, you know, a pilot comes on and tells you about his training. And it's, I think at the core, that's what this podcast is, is people come on and they dump their data. That took years to uh, to uh, to compile. But I think that's probably the most accurate description of this podcast is the data dump. And I like that. So as long as you've got data, I'm, I'm going to pull it out of you. Absolutely. Professor Ken, 
thank you so much, sir. Email me. I'll text you, and we'll set up the next episode. But uh, All right. And I'll text you when this one's up, okay? Excellent. All right. Send it to my email. Send it to my email. Yes, sir. And text me. And text me. Yes, sir. All right, Ken. All right. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.